the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we celebrate the Reformation, and the Reformation is without doubt one of the most significant events in the history of the world in the last thousand years, both in worldly and in spiritual terms. In worldly terms, representative government, universal education and literacy, capitalism, the scientific revolution, and a political order established around nation states, all these things have their root in the Reformation, in the radical shifts that it caused in European society. And yet even if all the antecedent causes of these things that make our modern world are to be found in the Reformation, it was not about any of those things at all. At the time of the Reformation, a dark pall had fallen over Christendom. John had warned the young Christian church in his letters that the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already, was at work. The gospel, the good news that the Son of God had taken on human flesh, was crucified, died, and buried for the forgiveness of sins, and that he had risen for the justification of all that believed in him, had gone out. And it bore much fruit. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost, and thousands upon thousands more were gathered into Christ's church in those days just after the resurrection. Persecution arose. The faithful were scattered throughout the empire, but with them they carried the proclamation of the gospel, that two-edged sword that is sharp enough to cut to the division of bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And many more were brought to faith. The harvest was plentiful, Jews and Greeks, peoples from across the Roman world and beyond were set free, freed by Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, from their slavery to sin, the tyranny of the devil, and the fear of death. The devil's persecution, it failed. The blood of the martyrs only watered the seed of faith, and the church flourished, until Rome herself was captured. But the spirit of the Antichrist was at work. And so it was, with the aid of the hearts of sinful men, that the wicked spirit made his residence not in imperial palaces or pagan temples, because they had fallen, but within the church herself. And this is something always to remember about the Antichrist, that the Antichrist is a churchly figure. It is true that all pagan religions, all false teachings, all... At, ideologies that contradict Holy Scripture are demonic, but it is the uh, spirit of the Antichrist in the church. The Antichrist paints himself as being a Christian. The devil put on his favorite disguise. He paraded around as an angel of light. He wrapped himself in robes. He carried a shepherd's crook. He adorned himself with crosses. And he claimed to speak the word of God in the name of God. He proclaimed to his dislike, but he couldn't root it out entirely, the true dogmas of the faith, while also slipping in the leaven of false teaching, 
All the while, he managed to squirrel away the word of God from the people. He hid it in monasteries, in bishops' palaces, and in universities, where it could not shine its light. He used plausible-sounding arguments. He appealed to Christians' rightful reverence for the holy books, saying that it was not fitting for the word of God to be translated into the vulgar tongues of the people. Only that noble and elegant and most ancient of languages of Latin was worthy to cloak the word of God. With the word kept from the people, the gospel was buried and hidden to the best of his ability under canon law and church ordinances and new perverse and false teachings. Christ was transformed from a gracious savior near at hand, bringing salvation to a distant and stern judge who could only be appeased by the intercession of saints, by your works, and most importantly, of course, by your loyalty to the magisterium of the church. And you all know that particularly egregious error per perpetrated by the institutional church, by the institutional church rather on Christ's sheep, and that was the sale of indulgences. The Pope needed money to build St. Peter's Basilica and to support his lavish court, and he needed a lot of it. Over the prior centuries, a false teaching had arisen, and purgatory was invented. The seeds began in the fourth century, but they grew in the early Middle Ages. It came to be taught that Christ's death had paid for the eternal consequences of your sins. He saved you from hell, but there was still a temporal price that needed to be paid, and it was steep. It could be paid while you lived, by penance and satisfactions, but any outstanding debt which you had when you died would need to be purged in the torturous fires of purgatory. Only the most holy and blessed of saints would find themselves in, the rep in repose in the arms of Jesus immediately upon death. During the first crusade, the concept of an indulgence came into full force. How could the Christian knights of Europe be convinced to leave house and home, sell almost everything they had, and pick up arms and go fight in the Holy Land? The Pope would grant them a full and plenary indulgence for their sins. If they picked up the sword and served the church, he would remit all the temporal consequences for their sins. That is, no purgatory, straight to heaven when you die. And in this, the Pope, during Luther's day, saw his chance. He would use Christian's fear of purgatory, a place invented by men, and the precedent of indulgences, also invented by man, to fill his coffers. Of course, all this while claiming that this was the teaching once delivered to the saints and handed down by the apostles. He said that Christ and the saints had performed so many great and holy and wondrous works that they had extra to the share. And they could be credited to your account and pay off your debt. Give you a straight shot to heaven. Skip purgatory. Skip the line. But those great and holy works were locked up in a great vault in heaven, a vault which he, the Pope, alone had the key. 
And he'd gladly use that key and open it and share it with the poor sinners of Europe. But of course, there was the matter of the fee. And so the Pope's agents went throughout Europe to preach indulgences. Forget penance, the hard work of atoning for your own sins, uh, now the corruption that had entered the church. Here is a cheap and easy way to pay for sin. And not just that, not only could you buy an indulgence for your own sin, but you could buy it for your dearly beloved, uh, departed loved ones. Tetzel, a priest, one of the Pope's salesmen, went to Germany with his jingle. When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That is, Grandma Schmidt is burning. Just give a little bit of gold, and she will enjoy her heavenly reward. And so the masses, the sheep of Christ, both rich and poor, were fleeced of their money for a false promise of spiritual reward. The Antichrist has, had done his work. He stripped the people of the gospel, of the free forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake, and replaced it with a false gospel of indulgences. He turned Christ's blood, that source of all spiritual riches and blessings, into a bank to gain earthly treasure, all the while claiming to be Christ's vicar on earth. And it was this, this obviously false teaching, that first spurred Luther into action. For Luther was a monk and a doctor of the church, and knew that the practice of indulgences was found nowhere in Holy Writ. It was not found in the church fathers, nor even among the theologians of the first millennia. But here we come to a misconception that we often have. We know that the gospel, the free forgiveness of sins, was the heart of the Reformation. And so we assume that Luther objected to indulgences on the basis of the gospel. But in 1517, Luther himself did not yet know the gospel. So thoroughly had it been buried. What he did know, what he felt deeply weighing upon his soul and upon his life, was the law of God and God's just wrath against sin. That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so if you read Luther's famous 95 Theses, you will find that not a single thesis of those 95 is about the gospel. Luther's objection to indulgences was not that they were works righteousness, but rather that they were too cheap that they could not satiate God's justice, that a coin in the coffer was not nearly enough to pay for sin. And of course, Luther was right. Luther himself often spent hours a day in confession, hours in prayer, emaciated his body with fasting, abused himself with whips, wore rough-hewn clothing, and kept himself up and deprived himself of sleep. But he could not rid himself of sin and felt, despite his best efforts, the weight of God's wrath upon him. He turned to the scriptures anew. What could satisfy God's demand for justice? Where might we find forgiveness and find a gracious God? 
Who could free us from our bondage to sin, from the tyranny of the devil, from the fear of death, and from the accusations of the law? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Luther describes that night in the tower when he was reading the book of Romans, and like a thunderclap, the gospel was revealed to him. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It was Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Jesus, who had taken on our sinful humanity and went to the cross for us. Jesus and his blood alone that makes the captive free. No amount of fasting, no amount of whipping, no works of our own could satisfy the law of God. Only the whip on Christ's back. Only his work and his shed blood on the cross. He had done it, and he had done it for us. Indeed, it was true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no indulgence issued by the Pope could fix that. No work, no merit of mortal men could fix that. But true righteousness, the righteousness of God, who is the only one who is truly righteous, comes, as St. Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus has set us free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. It is Christ's work alone that brings salvation, a gift of grace alone, received in faith alone, known through the scriptures alone, all glory to God alone that we are saved. That is what the Reformation was about. The free gift of grace and salvation, the forgiveness of sins in the shed blood of Jesus as proclaimed by the prophets and apostles for all time. Thanks be to God that through his word and through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Antichrist is overthrown and the light of the gospel shines again in the church and sets us free. And we pray that it might so shine through us that the gospel will go forth as it did in those early days and bind the devil and make him captive and set free the people's of our nation. Amen. You may rise for the offertory. Amen.